Good morning. That loud static noise was my fault. Sorry about that. Somebody back there came running up to me and said my mic was still on. And so I panicked and just shut the whole thing down because uh, they weren't ready for that. Did y'all hear me? Was things coming through out there? No? Okay, good. (laughs) 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 So I had to come up here pretty red. No, No, it it wasn't as bad as it really could have been. We were at a church in Tyler when I was younger, and uh, the church had a group of men that were in a a gospel quartet, and they got up and did a special song, and they were all wearing wireless mics, and one of them must not have been feeling good during the song. He went straight to the bathroom, and the mic was still on, and everybody could hear it, and... uh, but he never showed back up in church again after that. <laughs> it's one of my, if I have nightmares, that's usually what they entail around, you know, something like that. <clears throat> As we begin part three today of the series on the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be in the book of Acts again. So if you have your Bibles with you, won't you turn to chapter eight? Last week we saw how. Scripture clearly tells us that the supernatural gifts of the Spirit that we read about in the New Testament that were operating through the Christians in the early church are still valid and useful for the church today. And we know that because, for one, the disciples were given these supernatural abilities that enabled them to reap this spiritual harvest of souls. And we talked about how we are still living in that spiritual harvest season, and so we still need that same ability in order to continue the reaping. We also looked at 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul explicitly says that Uh, The gifts of the Spirit are to continue until Jesus returns. The bottom line is there really isn't anything in the Bible that would lead us to believe that uh, the gifts of the Spirit ended with the original apostles. They are just as available and just as useful for us today as they were to them back then. But I also told you last week that there are some things that were specifically for those men for that particular time. There was something going on then that we shouldn't expect to still be the case today. And I said that we'd be looking at that this week. So uh, let's look at this text here in chapter 8 and see one of those events. Now to set this up, in chapter 7, Stephen has been stoned to death for refusing to stop preaching the gospel. He was the first martyr. And what the religious leaders who had him stoned thought would douse this fire that was spreading through Jerusalem only fanned the flames and caused it to spread even more. What Satan meant for evil, God intended for good. And he used Stephen's murder to spread the gospel outside of Jerusalem. In fact, you and I, we could say that we get to hear and receive the good news of the gospel here in the United States because of Stephen's death. 
Because how God used that was that it was contained to Jerusalem only up to this point. And so when Christians there saw and heard what happened to Stephen, many of them scattered, got out of the city, fearing that they were going to suffer the same persecution. And everywhere they scattered to, they would share the good news of the gospel there, and people were continuing to be saved, and it just made it spread throughout the whole area. Philip, who was one of the seven men chosen by the apostles in Acts chapter 6 to take care of some of the physical needs of the church, uh, along with Stephen, he goes off to Samaria after Stephen's death. And we're going to read about what happened with him there, starting in verse 4 of Acts chapter 8. So let's all stand together and read this amazing account. Excuse me. It says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were given attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, so there was much rejoicing in that city. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the least to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed the great, uh, observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, uh, Lord, first of all, for what you are doing among this church right now. I thank you for the word, the message that that you have given us. Lord, this, uh, God, I just thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for what lays in store for us. God, I pray that this morning that we would be able to grab hold of that and really hear your voice and what you're saying And God, that there would be nothing holding us back, no distractions or hindrances or previous hang-ups that would keep us from understanding what it is that you are saying. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes to see and understand, God, what it is that the Spirit is saying to our church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, before we look closer at this, it's important to understand something about the book of Acts. And uh, for those of you that have been through the Believe class on Wednesday night, this will be familiar to you because this is part of what we talk about when we're learning how to read all the Scripture through the lens of the Gospel. I say that whenever you read something in the Bible, you you need to determine uh, whether what you are reading is what is called a descriptive text or a prescriptive text. 
text. And if you're following along in the notes there in your bulletin, these are the first two blanks, descriptive and prescriptive. Uh, descriptive text is just what it says it is. It is describing something that happened. And just because it happened the way that it is being described there does not necessarily mean that that's the way that it has to be from now on. A prescriptive text, however, is uh, one that is prescribing something for us. It is telling us what we should do. And whatever a prescriptive text says, it should be taken as this is the way it should always be done. All of the epistles, which are the letters in the New Testament written to all the, the churches, are examples of prescriptive Text. They are saying, this is how we are to always live in light of what Jesus has done. The book of Acts is exactly what the entire title of the book says, the Acts of the Apostles. This is what happened with them, which doesn't necessarily mean this is how it should happen with everyone from now on. Now, the way that we know of something in a descriptive text like Acts should always be applied to us is if we also find it talked about in a prescriptive text like the epistles. So we know that the spiritual gifts are still valid and useful for us today and not just for the original apostles because not only do we read about the apostles doing them in Acts, but we also find them talked about extensively in several of the other epistles. In the prescriptive texts of the Bible. But there are some things that happen with the apostles that we don't find anywhere else in the epistles or in any other prescriptive books, yet some believe should still be happening today as well. And one of those things is this um, filling, receiving, or what many refer to as baptism of the Holy Spirit being something separate and secondary to actual salvation and conversion. Uh, it's something that we find on at least two occasions in the book of Acts. First, you had uh, the original uh, disciples that were gathered together there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost that we looked at last week. I mean, these were people who believed in Jesus. They were his disciples, and so essentially they were the first Christians. They were saved, but then it was many days later that they received this filling of the Holy Spirit. And then you have this account that we just read um, with Philip. Verse 12 says, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So right there in verse 12, it's talking about water baptism. They believed in the gospel and Philip baptized them. Um, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came down from Jerusalem, laid their hands on them, and prayed for them to receive it. And so based on those two instances in Acts, some people build this whole doctrine. I mean, entire denominations are built on this specific doctrine that being filled with the Holy Spirit is a separate act, a separate event apart from conversion. But if we look at these instances here closer, we will see that they were actually very unique circumstances. 
Another doctrine that comes from Acts is that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the evidence of that will always be that you'll be speaking in tongues. If you don't have the gift of tongues and you don't have the Holy Spirit, or so they say. This doctrine is based on the fact that in some of these instances, when this separate filling occurred, the people who received that secondary filling, they they did speak in tongues. It happened at Pentecost, and it happened in the house of Cornelius when God told Peter in a vision to go there and preach the gospel to those Gentiles. Both of those doctrines, being filled uh, by the Holy Spirit, being a separate event apart from salvation, and everyone having the evidence of speaking in tongues, was something that was specifically for this particular time. And let me show you how we know that. First of all, you got to keep in mind that this was a period in history that will never be repeated again. Because it was a time of great transition. A transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. A transition between the old covenant work of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. If you follow along in the Old and New Testaments and pay attention to how the Holy Spirit operated, you will see that it was, he was quite different. He operated differently uh, under those two covenants. For the apostles to be the first ones to receive the Holy Spirit was a signal that Old Testament prophecy had been fulfilled in Jesus. The new covenant age was here. And for it to be separate and distinct in the apostles first signaled to everyone that they were to be the leaders and to carry the greatest weight of authority in this new movement, in the church. There were many Christians right now who were filled with the Spirit and doing miraculous things. We talked last week about how that wasn't just limited to the 12 apostles. Everyone who believed this was happening to. But it was Peter whom God specifically uh, spoke to through this vision telling him that he needed to go to the house of Cornelius and share the gospel with these Gentiles. Now, the reason why God told Peter to go do it and not any other Christian who was filled with the Spirit is because at this point, everyone thought or just assumed that this thing that was going on was just for the Jewish people. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, God had just had everything specifically for them, and so they just assumed that this new thing was carrying over too, and this was just a Jewish thing. And so if anyone else other than one of the 12 apostles, or I would say anyone else other than Peter, who at this time was looked to as the main leader in the church, if anyone else had gone to the house of Cornelius and shared the gospel and this would have happened, then it could have easily come into question as to whether or not it was legitimately for the Gentiles. But for Peter, of all people, to be the one to do it, Nobody could question that. I mean, there was no higher authority in the church other than Jesus than Peter. And so for him to be the one to not only see it, but it to happen to, through him, I mean, there was no question. Yes, this validates the fact that it is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. In the case of Philip in Samaria that we just read in, in Acts 8, it's important to, to know a little bit of background there. The Samaritans were a mixed race 
of Jews and Gentiles. They weren't pure Jews, and so they were really considered second-class citizens, if thought of that highly, because they were despised by the Jews, and they often called them dogs. That's why it was such a big deal for Jesus to be speaking with the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. Not only would Jews not speak to uh, Samaritans or even acknowledge their existence, but a man would not be caught dead speaking to a Samaritan woman. But Jesus did that day. Now, think about this. Philip was not one of the 12 apostles. He was one of the deacons. But he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was doing miraculous things, healing people and casting out demons and just all these miraculous signs and wonders that were happening through him. And so it seems very logical that he could have been the one, after these people got saved listening to him, that he could have been the one to pray that they receive the Holy Spirit because he had it. And miraculous things were happening through him, but it didn't happen that way. When word got to Jerusalem that the Samaritans were now believing the gospel, Peter and John went down to check it out. Now, this happened before the event with Cornelius and Peter. And so this was when they were still assuming that it was just for the Jews, just for the pure Jews. These, these mixed heathens, there's no way it can be, they can be included too. And so the two most prominent apostles went down to see for themselves so that they could validate whether this was really happening or not. And so it was them, those two, who laid their hands on the people and prayed for them to receive the Spirit. And for those two to be the ones to do it made it evident to the highest levels of leadership that Samaritans who who believed in the gospel, who were saved, were no longer to be considered second-class citizens, but they were full and equal members of the church just as much as the Jews were, which was a big deal. And so, those, though these instances were a second experience of the Holy Spirit, apart from conversion, they're not to be taken as a pattern for, way, for the way it should always be today, too. And the reason is, for one, uh, we are not living in this time of transition work of the Holy Spirit. In their case, I mean, these were people who actually lived under the old covenant being in effect, and then... Jesus died and was resurrected. The Holy Spirit came, and now suddenly they are living under a completely new covenant of God. These were the only people in history to live under both covenants. Today, you and I start off with the new covenant having been fully in effect for a long time. And so there is no time of transition anymore that we are in. And there are no more people groups that need to be validated as having a right to the things of God like everyone else. I mean, Scripture has already fully validated that it is for all tribes and tongues of all nations that no one is to be excluded. And so there's not this validation process that really needs to happen anymore. Another reason we shouldn't take these instances as patterns that should still happen today is because none of the epistles, the, the prescriptive texts in the Bibles, like I say, talk about receiving the Holy Spirit as a secondary experience after conversion, nor does it talk about everyone who has the Holy Spirit needs to be speaking in tongues. 
In fact, as we'll see when we look closer at that particular gift later on in the series, Paul specifically says that not all speak in tongues. It is simply one of many gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to whoever he wills. You also have to take into consideration that receiving the Spirit after conversion and those who receive it speaking in tongues at this time, it did not happen that way in every instance, even in the book of Acts. I mean, it was always something different that seemed to be going on. When Peter Peter preached to Cornelius, them believing the gospel and being filled with the Holy Spirit, that happened at the exact same time. I mean, it was a simultaneous event. They didn't believe and then later on get filled. Um, Let's look at that. Turn over to Acts chapter 10. Acts 10, starting in verse 44. It says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. I mean, right there. Boom. They're listening. They believe. The Holy Spirit falls. And the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for, for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, Kenny. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. And so we see believing, receiving the Holy Spirit happened at the same time there. With Philip and the Samaritans, they believed in the gospel. They got baptized with water and then received the Holy Spirit. But with the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, they believed and were filled simultaneously and then were baptized with water. So to say that it has to happen a certain way today because it happened that way in the book of Acts is kind of silly because even in the book of Acts, it didn't happen that way in every instance. There was always something different and not even with speaking in tongues. I mean, the disciples that were there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Spirit and uh, began speaking in tongues. Cornelius' household spoke in tongues after being filled with the Holy Spirit. But in the account we just read with the Samaritans, it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't say a thing about them speaking in tongues. When the disciples prayed in Acts 4, it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak, not in tongues, but began to speak the Word of God with all boldness. And so the book of Acts is not... Uh, something to use as a sole basis for, for developing any hard and fast doctrine on because things didn't always happen the same way every time, even in Acts. <clears throat> and the reason some of those things happened the way they did was, like I said, because of the situation. It was this transition period that will never again exist um, in history. The Holy Spirit operated a little differently even within that transition than he does now with the new covenant being fully in effect. And what we know about how he operates in the church today, we base on the prescriptive texts of the epistles and not solely on the descriptive book of Acts. And what we know based on the epistles is the next point in your notes there. And that is the moment you believe and put your trust in Jesus, 
as your only hope for salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit. Right then, the fullness of Christ himself immediately takes up residence in you. In fact, this is the very first miraculous supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I mean, revealing Jesus to a depraved and lost soul. I've talked many times before about how none of us could ever be saved by our own ability, intellect, or reasoning. It's just impossible for us. We are so dead in sin that we have to be awakened and made alive and have our eyes open to the reality of both our helpless condition and Jesus being the only remedy for it. We can't even comprehend the truth of the gospel on our own without the Holy Spirit being the one to reveal that supernaturally to us. I mean, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually understood. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit not only miraculously regenerates you and makes you your spirit alive to God, but he also completely fills you. And because of that, if you are in Christ, you have a supernatural power in you that can enable you to do things that you never would be able to do on your own. Let's look at some of the places in Scripture that tell us this. Now, before we do, I want to make something clear here. I titled this message, Receiving Him, meaning receiving the Holy Spirit. It's not receiving it. The next point in your notes is something that I believe is essential to understand. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. He is the third person of the Trinity, not something that exists external to God himself. And so to reject the Holy Spirit, you're rejecting God because it is, that's him. Okay, back to the verses. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13 up on the screen. It says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So, it says it's the spirit that does that. Being baptized into the body means becoming a part of the church, becoming a member of God's family. When does that actually happen? The moment of salvation. And so, here, Paul is tying the receiving of the spirit to the moment of salvation. In Romans 8 and 9, he says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. When you were saved, did you belong to Christ? Of course you did. Yes. If you belong to Christ, and this says the spirit of God dwells in you which means that had to have come the moment you were saved. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you aren't saved. This is what this scripture is saying. 
You know, one of the problems with this belief that the baptism or receiving the Holy Spirit is something that happens apart from conversion is that it automatically creates two different classes of Christians. Now, I don't believe it's intentional, and I've talked to people that believe this, and they say, well, it's not supposed to, that that's not what they believe, but it's just, it's just naturally a consequence of that belief because you start hearing the term people being referred to as spirit-filled Christians. You've got those who believe in and operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Those are the Spirit-filled Christians, and the rest of us are what? The unleaded Christians? I don't know. You've got the super and unleaded and regular Christians. But it definitely creates two groups. And that goes against the fact that Paul speaks several times about how there are no divisions between God's people, that we are all one in Christ. Just like the verse we just read in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are all made to drink of one spirit and become one body. There's not these two classes. Listen, this is the next point in your notes. A spirit-filled Christian is a redundant term. It is. Because Paul just said in the scripture we saw just a minute ago, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. And so to say somebody's a Christian, they automatically have the Spirit. And so a Spirit-filled Christian is a redundant term. I mean, you may not realize what it actually means to have the Holy Spirit in you. Uh, You may not be operating in any of the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, but that doesn't change the fact in the least bit that you are Spirit-filled. And so saying someone is a spirit-filled Christian is a redundant term. It's like saying someone is a good-looking bald man. I mean, it's just redundant, right? (laughs) If you're bald, it goes without saying. We're all my bald brothers in here. Can I get an amen? All right. (laughs) I'm kidding. For most of us. (laughs) One more. Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians because they started believing that they had to keep following the Old Covenant law in order to maintain their salvation as Christians. And so Paul wrote Galatians to correct them about this error. Look at what he says. If I get there, starting in verse 2 of chapter 3. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so in verse 2, he says, we received the Spirit by what? The laying on of hands of someone who prayed for us? No, by faith. It was their faith in Jesus that not only led to their salvation, but also caused them to receive the Holy Spirit. And he didn't say, you began with salvation by faith and then got the Spirit. He said, you began with the Spirit. Last point. Being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time event, but a continual occurrence. It's a continual occurrence. And this is where I believe some people have made the mistake of believing that it's something that's separate from salvation. You receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit the moment that you put your trust in Jesus. 
But there are times when the Holy Spirit can overcome and empower you in much stronger ways than you have ever experienced before. We read an example of this in Acts 4 last week when Peter and John were brought before the religious leaders and they scolded them, told them not to preach Jesus anymore. Peter and John go back to their friends and uh, they tell them what happened and they all start praying that God would give them more boldness and more power. And keep in mind that most of, most of, if not all, of those believers there that it's referring to were the ones that were originally in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And so they have already received this supernatural filling of the Holy Spirit. But look again at what verse 31 says. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They're filled again. On the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Spirit, which caused them to speak in other languages about the glories of God, which led to 3,000 people getting saved right there on the spot. Here, they are spil- they're filled with the Spirit again, which makes them be empowered to speak the Word of God with more boldness. So there are times when even though we're already at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit can empower us to do miraculous things in that particular moment. Sometimes God will lead us to things, lead us to a conversation with someone, and uh, uh, we're going to need some supernatural knowledge to speak into something in their life. Maybe it's praying for someone that God wants to heal in that moment or, or something, a situation that God leads you to that if you're going to be able to do what he has called you to do, you're going to need something more than you already have naturally. Amen. And that's when the Holy Spirit just empowers you, boom, in that moment. And so some have had an experience like that and refer to that as the time that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit and it came apart from salvation. It's like as if it is a one and done thing. It happened and that's, that's my mark. But it's actually a continual occurrence, especially if we are open to the Spirit doing that in our lives. Look, folks, all God is looking for is some willing vessels. God, use me to reap that spiritual harvest. God, use me to expand your kingdom, not for my glory, but for yours. Let your spirit do things through me that enable me to effectively do that for you. And he will. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul is writing to Christians who have already, they already have the spirit. And he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. The way the original Greek is constructed in that phrase right there, it literally means be continually filled with the Spirit. And so as you go about your daily life as a follower of Christ, you go about it with the fullness of Christ himself in you via the Holy Spirit. But There may be times where it seems that the Holy Spirit has just come upon you in these stronger ways than you have ever experienced before. And in that moment, you are suddenly made aware of God's presence so strong in and around you. And in that moment, he may give you the sudden ability to do something that you normally wouldn't be able to do. These are the things that the Bible calls spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Spirit. 
And next week, we're going to start looking at some of those gifts specifically and to see how they are used, how they are to be used for God's glory in the church today. Let's pray. Lord, it is such good news that you have not left us to our own abilities to carry out your work, to live lives that give you glory. Lord, to think that we could just do anything so glorious in our own strength is pretty arrogant. Lord, we confess that we are nothing without you. We have no ability in and of our natural self that we can claim. God, we need your power. We need your ability. Lord, I thank you that you are beginning to open the eyes of people who have not ever seen this before or others who have told them that this wasn't for them, that they can't have something like that. God, what terrible news that is. What terrible news. Lord, your news is good. Lord, I pray that someone in here today will realize that being a Christian means so much more than just getting to go to heaven or being saved from hell. That God, you have brought them into a supernatural way of living, a higher way of living than anything that they have ever known before. And Lord, I pray again for those of us who may be fearful of this and that fear based on what we may have heard or bad experiences that we have had or just the error that we have seen the way these things are handled. But God, I pray again right now that our desire for what you want would be so much greater than the fear of what might be. God, let your will be done in this church. Let it be done in our lives and let us be able to just grab hold of what it is that you are calling us to, what you have for us, for us so that the world, God, could stand back and say, how great is our God? How great are you? Lord, would you do things through us that only you could be able to take credit for? God, we love you. Thank you for what you're doing. Don't let us miss it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.